Amen and good morning. Let me just start off and say that I want to say something that's not in my notes. It always makes Monty very nervous when I do that. But I think he will like this. Y'all need to get on Right Now Media right now. Man, I had not seen that, and I haven't seen all those stories. I'm like, look, we, y'all, some of y'all about to be in the stories too. You just don't know it yet. But ain't nothing like hearing the real alive work that Jesus Christ does in a person's life, and we're going to have a ton of those coming up. Great encouragement. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke 24, 13 through 35. We have been through the crucifixion, the death and burial of Christ, and then last week, uh, last week the uh, uh, resurrection of Christ. And a lot of people over the years have called this Low Sunday. Right, the Sunday after the resurrection. And if you're reading the Bible correctly, it's anything but low Sunday. And this morning we got some serious points. But if you want to know, there's another tone in our passage, and that is one of levity and suspense and drama and intensity. And man, it just gets better and better after Jesus rose from the dead. So we're going there. But let me take you first back to, we're again in Luke 24. Uh, let me take you back to uh, 1992 to 1998. I was the chaplain of the Cincinnati Reds and Bengals. And uh, they were sort of my, my ministry in terms of win, build, and sin, and then train them to equip them to use their platform to share the gospel. So uh, Jen and I did that for six years. And one of the things I did was I would engage the believers on the team by doing some relational activities to get them out of our house, go play golf, go fishing to to you know, get trust between us, build the relationship. But the other thing, I'd always tell them to bring some of the non-Christians on the team with me because, look, they were wild, man. And so what helped me gave me credibility with the non-Christians when they, you know, hang out. Oh, that's Jeff. Yeah, oh, okay, that's who you are. Then I could get lunch with them, share the gospel, do the whole thing. So we show up this early Sunday morning, uh, not Sunday morning, summer morning. I was always in church on Sunday. And, um, uh, you didn't catch that, did you? Okay. Um, so we show up early summer morning to play golf. And I had some Christians with me, non-Christians. As we got there, I was by far the smallest guy uh, there. And as we did some, some by far. And so as we did some uh, hitting some balls on the driving range, this little five foot four, 130-pound soaking wet guy comes up. And immediately all the Cincinnati Bengals were like, hey, what's up, dude? And one guy picked him up, sort of shook him, you know, and laughing and talking. I'm like, it's like Sesame Street. One of these things don't fit. And it was this five foot four, 130-pound guy. So after a few minutes, they got through saying hello. I went over to him, introduced myself. I said, how you doing? I'm Jeff. He said, hey, nice to meet you. I'm Steve. And so the normal chit-chat followed, and eventually I said, well, what do you do for a living? He says, "Uh, I race horses. I was like, oh, do you race them like on a horse track, or do you like race them through the wild, wild west? (laughs) You know, funny guy, right? He said, on a horse track. I said, oh. So have you, and I'm just trying to, I'm thinking, horse racing. So, well, and initially when I said, where do you work? He said, I'm retired. I was like, oh, God in his early 30s, retired. Hmm, daddy must have left him a lot of money, right? What do you do, horse race? Where do you race them? On a horse track. And I said, 
sort of sarcastically in my head. So have you ever raced in the big races like the Kentucky Derby? <laughs> Showing my complete knowledge of horse racing in one word, two words, Kentucky Derby. And in doing so, he said, yes. So how about the Belmont Stakes or the Preakness? Yes. Very calm. I said, how would you do in those races? Thinking, well, I was last or whatever. He said, I won them. <laughs> I said, so, so just curious, did you ever win them all in the same year to win the Triple Crown? He said, yep. <laughs> I said, oh, God. I mean, you talking about goober personified. And all the Cincinnati Bengals were like, you're an idiot, dude. <laughs> this is Steve Cothran. Steve Cothran is one of the greatest jockeys ever. He was the youngest jockey to win the Triple Crown, riding the horse affirmed at 17 years old. They call him the kid. He was the only jockey ever to be named, then and now, Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year and the first jockey ever to break the $6 million purse or, or rewards for his deal. So my ignorance of horse racing, of that whole world, certainly showed up. The knowledge for me to know, though, was certainly available, but since I only had partial knowledge of this sport, what I didn't do, I did not recognize one of the world's greatest jockeys ever, and I was right in his presence. Our text is about that. Very similar this morning in Luke 24, 13 through 35. Context, Jesus has risen from the dead. He reveals himself to two of his followers traveling from the Passover in Jerusalem. They are going back to a little village called Emmaus. And they ain't no doubt they never forgot this encounter. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, an encounter of the third kind. Remember about aliens and UFOs? How I many you saw that movie? No, I'm so old. We, we are, they're like, who? Google it. This is an encounter of the divine kind. Let me read the text. Luke 24, 13 through 35. <laughs> that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in Jerusalem in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some, of our, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, 
that same morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I don't know if you're old enough to remember, you don't remember the movie about the aliens encounter of the third kind, but you may remember a character out of Andy Griffin named Gomer Powell. How many of you remember him? Thank you. We're back on track. Anytime he was shocked, he used the phrase, surprise, 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 three times. And when he did, or when I thought about that, I thought, this is what's happening here in the first four verses. It is the readers of this narrative of Luke. That's you and I and all who've read it since, since Luke wrote it. We get a surprise, and these two folks traveling to Emmaus get a surprise as well. One's name is Cleopas. We know nothing about him, and the other person is unidentified except what's in this text. And so after leaving Jerusalem, you got to think of the picture. It's Sunday afternoon after attending the Passover on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion. They're making, the text tells us, this seven-mile trip back home from the Passover all week to their village, Emmaus, and these two folks were talking with each other about all these things, the, the text tells us. So we asked the question, what things? Well, we go back to the previous Monday when uh, Jesus was riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. And then on Tuesday when he was cleansing the temple and then his teaching at the temple the whole week. And then they went through, as we've been through the last three weeks ourselves, his arrest, his mock trial, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And it's unimaginable to these two followers of Christ, to them that he was executed and killed by the leaders of Israel. So as they're talking and walking, you can imagine it has to be an intense conversation as they sort of rehearse all these things. 
My wife loves to walk with friends of hers, from Kimberly to Lisa Brown and other women. And when, if, if you've ever seen them in Berkshire, wherever they're walking, here's what's happening. They are wearing it out, talking and walking. And we're going to see that in a minute. But that's what's happening here. These two people are heartbroken, confused, angry, sad, crushed. I mean, they are, they are reeling in despair. Their expectation that the Messiah would redeem them from the oppression and occupation of Rome and then establish his throne in Jerusalem and, and certainly the world has vanquished when Jesus died. To them, the idea of a dead Messiah is incomprehensible because dead messiahs do not rule over anything. Verse 15 says, While they were talking and discussing this, Jesus himself drew near and began to talk to them. Did you catch that when I read it? I, I mean, have you seen those gifts that sort of like, oh, snap? Ooh. I mean, as the reader, that's what, that's what Luke wants us to get. Like, oh, Jesus is right there. He walks up. Makes me think of the, I love watching the videos. I cry every time, probably like you. When you see, uh, uh, for example, a dad coming home from war and they go to a high school basketball game and they put him in the mascot suit, right? You're watching it and the, and the mascot's out on the court taking a picture with the wife and kids. And they don't know that dad is in the suit, but we, the readers, the lookers, we know. And we're like, oh, and we're thinking, when's he going to reveal himself? And just the suspense of seeing the reaction. Verse 16 says, God blinded these two Christ followers from recognizing Jesus. But for us, the readers, the tension and the drama Look, it just shot through the roof. Uh-oh, I am going to keep reading. What and when and how will Jesus reveal himself to them as they are talking and walking? And that's our next point, verses 17 through 25. Verse 17, Jesus strolls up next to them as they are walking and talking about all these things. Now, this would be very normal. Because they didn't have cars, right? They didn't have motorcycles. Everybody walked on these well-worn roads. So public transportation, two feet. So for have somebody to, to be passing people on this road would be very normal. So he strolls up to them and he asks them a simple question. What are y'all talking about? Verse 17 or the last part of 17 tells us they stop in their tracks with sadness. Now, I don't know how it looked, but I can just imagine they just stopped and like, really, dude? We are brokenhearted, and you're asking us, you're asking us, what are we talking about? Verse 18, one of them, Cleopas, returned Jesus' question with another question. Did you notice that? He says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in the last few days? Translated, have you been living under a rock, dude? 
Bro, you got issues. Do you read the newspaper? Do you watch the news, we might say? Man, he's thinking there have been hundreds of thousands of people descend on Jerusalem over the last week, and there's not a person out there that doesn't know what has happened concerning this person, Jesus Christ, but you. Man, you got, I mean, amazing. Verse 19. So I can imagine Jesus stands there, and he, he just hears all that they're saying, and they're going, you know, it's sort of half shame. What are you, you living under a rock? And when they get through, Jesus goes, what things? Like, tell me more. What sort of things happen here? Now, you know because Jesus is Jesus, Jesus is God, he knows what things. He's not asking them to get information. He's asking them so they will tell him what they think so he can speak into it. In verses 19, in the 19 through 24, they give what is their description of Jesus to Jesus. <laughs> That's awesome. They're talking to Jesus, explaining Jesus to Jesus. And first they start off, it's really hilarious. They say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man who was. <laughs> Past tense, right? And Jesus sort of probably thinking, no, I, he actually w was not was. He actually is. But keep going. Who was a prophet? Now, here's what we know. We know that's true. But we also know it's not true in the sense that Jesus was a prophet, but he was also more than a prophet. So here we start to see what we see through this whole text, which is this partial knowledge of the Messiah. Keep that in the back of your head. They continue with this description. They describe Jesus. They say his words were powerful. His deeds were powerful. His deeds, in the sense he had, they had seen him heal folks, you got to remember they've been following him 24-7 in some ways for several years. He saw him raise people from the dead. They saw him create food. His words were powerful, which takes us back. And we remember that the soldier that was sent to arrest Jesus heard Jesus speak and came back and said, I've never heard anyone speak like him. Jesus proved he was a spokesperson for God. This is what they're saying by both his words and his actions. But notice what the text says, not only before God, it says very specifically before God and all the what? All the people. This was Jesus' reputation. The vast majority of the common people thought in Jesus this way. There was no way they couldn't. The things he said and the things he did left them one, one conclusion. Not that they had put their trust in for salvation, but one conclusion in the sense, this guy really is different. And you may think, well, Jeff, just a week before, they were screaming, crucify him. They were, but there was a lot of manipulation of the crowd, of the certain members of the crowd by the religious leaders. But this was generally what was going on. And then verse 20 says, but here is the shocking point. Luke wants you to get this. These two people are shocked that the very ones 
who were to be their spiritual leaders, are the very ones that condemned him to death and crucified him. If you remember, that's exactly what Peter said in Acts chapter 5. He was arrested. He was standing before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And here's what the high priest said in Acts 5. To Peter, he says, Peter, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're blaming us. That's a great opportunity for Peter to say, my bad. Because I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be killed. My, my bad. I probably misstated that. I apologize. And then get out and keep preaching Jesus. But here's what Peter says. He said just what these two people said. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. Peter's saying the same thing. Out of all the people who should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, it was these spiritual leaders, and instead, they're the ones that killed him for nothing. Verse 21, as this dilemma goes on and this conversation continues, the real issue comes out. Their expectations of who Jesus was and what he would do comes out. It's verbalized. They say he was supposed to redeem Israel politically and economically. He was supposed to bring it back to make it a world power. Add to that, they, they add on, and he's supposed to raise on the third day. And we still don't see any Jesus. That Jesus had not shown up is confirmation in their minds that he is dead. And up to that point, everyone who died stayed dead. These two people in the rest of these verses here, they basically say, I know, I know. Okay, we heard the story of the angels at the empty tomb. We heard how Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women told the apostles that the tomb was empty. But if you look back in, in, in Monty's passage last week, Luke 24, 11, when they told the apostles, what did the apostles say? Just the old wives tell. <laughs> That's crazy talk. You've lost your mind. The bottom line is what they're saying is the tomb may be empty. But if I don't see a body of Jesus walking with me and talking with me, I don't believe he's risen and alive. And the ironic thing, he's literally walking and talking with them as they say that to him. I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus, I'll just start snickering, <coughs> right? Man. Let me just make this point. None of these folks expected a resurrection. They did not even think the Messiah would die, less alone, raised from the dead. So there's no way they would even conceive of faking a resurrection. We always crush Thomas, old doubting Thomas. We crush him every time we see him for doubting Jesus. Folks, there are, at this point, there are lots of doubting Thomases. 
So, surprise, surprise, talking and walking from Genesis to Malachi, verses 25 through 27. Now, I don't know about you, but I think my natural bent, and for the most part, your natural bent, is to look at these two people who are so sad, so brokenhearted, so confused, and we sort of want to just give them a pass, like, like we do in the South. What do we say? Bless their hearts. Anybody ever use bless their hearts? And your mamas ever say bless your hearts? These two people, they love Jesus. They just could not see that the Messiah would need to suffer and rise from the dead in order to be the Messiah. We just give them a pass. Man, they just hurting, you know? They're just so emotional. Do you notice when I read that Jesus, this is the last thing he did was give them a pass? He actually gave them a rebuke. Verse 25, he says, Oh, foolish ones, <laughs> and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The O oh there, when you see O, oh, it indicates great emotion. And the rebuke he gives them is in line with the rebuke that the angels gave in 24, 5 through 7, where the angel expresses a high level of disappointment that the women did not remember. He says to the women, you don't remember that Jesus had told them about being crucified and then would rise on the third day? That's a rebuke. Jesus says they are foolish and slow of heart to believe. Why does he say that? Because they did not believe all that the prophets had spoken about Jesus. Let me be clear. They believed the Old Testament scripture. If you'd asked these two people, do you believe that the Bible is true? What would have been their answer? Yep. No doubt. The issue is there was much they didn't know about the Old Testament because they were like us. They had failed to show themselves approved to open the scriptures and study them from themselves in such a way that they should have known this. If you had asked them, do you believe the Bible or the very words? Again, they would have said yes, but they had this selective and partial understanding of the Bible, okay, which leaves them in a very immature and bad place spiritually. It not only causes them to doubt things, but it's dangerous. Because when you have a partial understanding of the Bible, I'll tell you what happens, what's happened to me, is you can believe some awful things about God that aren't true. Verse 26, Jesus says to them, you knew, you knew it was the Christ, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. You knew as a Jew who was familiar with the Old Testament, you knew that. He didn't give him a pass. Over and over in Luke, what have we seen Jesus tell his followers? I'm going to die and rise again. Over and over in the Old Testament, what do we see the scripture say? That the Messiah is going to do what? He's going to die 
and he's going to rise again. How many times did Jesus say to the religious leaders when having conversations with them, have you not read? Meaning reading in the Old Testament. Jesus here is like, when you read your Bible, this is a good note for us, read it in such a way that you look for me on every single page. Because I wrote it as I inspired men through the Holy Spirit. In verse 27, Jesus interprets the scriptures, check this out, about himself to these two followers. And I just want to pause here because I want to tell you and me, I want to remind us that if you want Jesus to explain himself to you, open the scriptures. He, he wants to do that. So when Jesus goes to tell others about himself, where does he go? The scriptures. On this two and a half hour walk over the next seven miles, and here's what it says, starting with Moses who wrote the first five books of the, of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch, he shows them himself in every Old Testament book of the Bible. People said this is the greatest Old Testament survey course in the history of the world. So what do you, what do you think he says? I don't know exactly well, let me take a stab at it based on what we know the Old Testament says about the Messiah. I think he starts with Genesis and says, The blood atonement where God slays the animals to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, that's me. Now, at this point, he's not saying that's me, but to the readers, he's saying that's me, the only one who will be the final blood atonement for your sin. Genesis 3.15 I am the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head. Genesis 6 through 8. Remember the flood and Noah? Jesus is saying, I am the true ark of safety in which sinners enter and sail through the waters of divine judgment. I think he goes back to Genesis 22 and says, you remember the story of Isaac? Who was to be offered as a sacrifice, but God provided a ram in its place. That's a picture of me as your final substitute. I think he goes to Exodus 12. I'm the ultimate lamb without blemish. Remember the lamb without spot or blemish was supposed to be slaughtered and its blood wiped over the doorposts so the angel of death would bypass it. Jesus says, that's me, the ultimate and true Passover lamb who protects sinners from divine judgment. I think he possibly goes to Leviticus and he says, I am the Passover lamb who protects sinners. I mean, I am the high priest. He goes to Numbers. I'm the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I will lead my people well. Deuteronomy, I am the prophet unto, like unto Moses. Deuteronomy chapters 21 and 23, I am the one that was cursed by people into the land of rest. Judge deliver Ruth, I am the Samuel 5, 4, I am the heir of Solomon. 2 Kings, I am the one like Elijah, not accepted. I am the divine temple. Yeah, open up to Nehemiah. I'm the one. I'm the one who is our providential protector. In 22 that talked about 
and scoff. Founder of the earth, Proverbs. He took him to Isaiah chapter. The, this position and what's going to happen next? This guy knows his Bible. Well, yeah. And then the verses 28 through 31. They end their two-hour plus to walk seven And as they get He acts like he's just going to. Really nice to meet you. I hope. Next, I'd be glad to get back with you. I say after. Him to stay because it's. In big, look, he. Is breaking bread. This stranger was in. Poof. Give all the money. I might be mad when he's and they <laughs> and screaming he sung last week He's alive. Where are from? They tell it often. This produces testimony. And Jesus makes us open our mouths about Jesus. Christian. Uh, Christ. Who knows. Them. Often. energy. Notice what to take. After walking they left 
We study it. And here's what they did. They went to the apostles and said, look, y'all can call us fools. You can say we're telling old wives' tale. We're telling you Jesus is alive. Wake up, dudes. Now all makes sense. If I was them, I'd be thinking, Jesus is so sneaky. Where is he? I want to see him. But I know he's alive. We also know these two folks and the 11 disciples that they told and other followers of Christ. Here's what they all did. For the rest of their life, until they took their last breath and met the risen Christ again in heaven, they never shut their mouths. Ever. Evangelism to those who do not know Christ and discipleship to those who do. They were, that's what Christians do. We unpack the scriptures to explain Jesus to others. You don't believe me? Go read Peter's sermon in Acts 2. He lays out who Jesus is from the Old Testament. You don't believe me? Go read Paul in Acts 26 as he stood before King Agrippa and then unpacked the scriptures for who Jesus is and his perspective of who he was before he came to know him and how after going through the scriptures, he realizes he's someone totally different than he thought he was. Now, what do we do when we come to the end of this narrative? I mean, that's a great story, and it's as true as anything else in the world. It's true. There's three things I thought about. I want to give them to you. These are so what applications. And one, the first one seems so ridiculous and so simple and so trivial but I'm telling you, if you'll remember these three words, it will change your life. And they are this. Jesus is alive. Let me tell you something. I had regret this week studying because I have lived as if Jesus was dead. I have lived as if I worshiped a dead Savior, and you have to. And I said, to, I said, Lord, <laughs> help me live in such a way that you are alive and that you would take those three words and I'll post them all over my bathroom and car and everywhere I go, Jesus is alive. So when life happens, not if it happens, when I get punched in the gut emotionally and there's, I'm nauseated, when I'm concerned and worried and tragic and I got friends, got cancer and one's kids in prison, all these calls this week. That happened this week. I kept saying to myself, Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, I'm going to talk to him. And I'm going to walk with him. He's going to lead me through as steady as God led, led the Israelites out of Egypt by cloud and fire. Man, if I die this week, that would be some great last words. The last words Jesus just said is Jesus is alive. Secondly. If you have a Bible, <laughs> let me just say this. 
vast majority of us, some of us, maybe most of us, came from churches where the Bible was a rule book instead of a living document from a living God. And we've read it as rule books. That's why we don't pick it, much, pick it up much anymore. But if you have a Bible, this text tells us at any time in any place, you can take a seven-mile walk with Jesus. <laughs> he wants to reveal himself to you. And our partial knowledge of God is because we have not been approved to be great studiers of his scripture. I can't do that for you. And if this is all that you're getting on Sunday from me and Monty, you will have a partial knowledge of Jesus. It would impact and paralyze your own maturity and growth in Jesus. And honestly, it would be dangerous. Dangerous for your lifetime of faithfulness to serve him and his mission. And then lastly... Man, I love this. We must be willing to tell the story of Jesus often, and we must learn to tell it well. Our maturity and intimacy with Jesus will be displayed by how much we speak of him and in what ways we speak of him. Not too long ago, a few months ago, I had a conversation with a guy in Murfreesboro who's been in church all his known life. And when I asked him the question, if you were to die today and stood before God and he said, why should I have let you into heaven, what would you say? His response to me was, I have a good heart. I mean, he had a partial knowledge of the Bible, but that's maybe, that's maybe, I mean, he was honest. I was so appreciative of that. But folks, that's a distortion of what the scriptures teach. You are living with, everywhere you go, people in Murfreesboro and beyond who have been in church all their life, and they don't know the Bible no more, and I know horse racing. You will tell it often and tell it well. Take a minute this morning. Ask the question, so what? Pick one, pick them all, but make a definitive plan. How am I going to apply this to my life?